0: Welcome to the new health club podcast. This is where the conversation around the new age of mental wellness begins. I think that psychedelics will play a big part in this and there's a lot of scientific research happening and an industry growing around the topic as we speak, but what are LSD magic mushrooms, psilocybin and MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health and personal progress in the future. On the New Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, thought leaders, and disruptors from the emerging new world of psychedelics and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous, and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronners.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Our guest today is Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS. We're very happy to have you on the show. We're very excited. You're the founder of MAPS, which is like probably one of the most um, relevant organizations, maybe the most relevant organization in the current world of psychedelics. So maybe you just explain very quickly what MAPS is and for those who never heard of you, which is unlikely.
1: Okay, so MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And it's basically a nonprofit psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company that I started in 1986, uh, one year after MDMA became criminalized in the United States. And we had actually um, engaged in a lawsuit against the DEA to try to protect the therapeutic use of MDMA. And the judge, the DEA administrative law judge, actually agreed with us and said it should be Schedule 3, which means It would be illegal recreationally, but legal as a therapeutic drug, and the administrator of the DEA rejected the recommendations of the judge, and then we sued twice in the appeals courts and won both times, saying that the administrator of the DEA's rationale for rejecting the recommendation was fatally flawed, but eventually, on the third try, the DEA lawyers figured out how to satisfy the court, and so even though the judge... Uh, took our side of the case, um, in the end, we lost. And so that's where I realized that the only way to bring back the therapeutic use of MDMA and other psychedelics was going to be through the FDA, through doing scientific research in a drug development context.
0: mm mm-hmm. So, and I mean, we, we're going to go very soon into your, let's say, 30 years of history. But first of all, I would like to really talk about you as a person, because I feel, in a lot of interviews you give, there's not so much about who's actually Rick Dublin, as a mensch, how people say about you. Because I recently had an interview (laughs) and somebody said, you would be so ideal to, let's say, be a guide for this whole psychedelic renaissance because you would be such a mensch, which is like a Jewish, Yiddish expression. And it means, It's a person of integrity and honor. So how do you feel like after kind of leading this, let's say you could say like 30 years of, you want to call it revolution or or evolution or renaissance. So so how do you feel in the meantime? Do you feel like a saint or anything?
1: (laughs) Um, I feel uh, far from a saint no and i feel that i've been um motivated this whole time by fear and anxiety and the fear is of the the murderous nature of human beings and the way in which as a species we're slowly committing suicide by destroying the planet by building weapons of mass destruction by killing each other by constantly um dividing us into us and them and so as a young boy, I was born at a time of the maximum amount of American power, 1953. Mm-hmm. And and so through all different ways from my family, from the culture, I inherited this idea that um, I had this, uh, and we Americans had this potential to kind of change things for the better. And so I was born at a time of American exceptionalism, and I kind of believed that. Um, I was um, educated a lot about the Holocaust as a young boy. And that's what really, um, I would say, has defined my entire life. So I, I had uh, distant relatives killed in the Holocaust. My grandfather came from Poland in 1920 to the United States, and the rest of his family stayed behind and was killed. I've had Israeli relatives since 1904, actually, in Palestine. So I was just very connected to that story. And... My dad was a doctor, my mother was a teacher, and so we grew up um, well off. um, And I was, um, in addition to American exceptionalism, I was um, the chosen people. (laughs) And then also I was male, and I was first born, and I was white, and I was uh, well off. So I I just had all of these things. And so, and I had a very loving family. And, And so when I was taught about the Holocaust, what I realized is that you could have all the money in the world, you could be secure, but everything was at risk because of what I would say um, psychological problems of people who are willing to let the rational part of their brain be overwhelmed by irrational fears and anxieties and hatreds. And, and so it just led me to think about psychology, about the mind and the way in which we... Um, separate ourselves from others and then make them less than us. That that was the fundamental existential challenge that I faced. And I felt that I had been um, inspired or given a mission by Holocaust survivors. I've had dreams of Holocaust survivors telling me to study psychedelics. And and the reason is because um, this idea that The classic psychedelics can produce an experience that takes you beyond your ego, beyond the way that we normally identify ourselves with our race, or our religion, or our nationality, or our gender, or any number of these different ways that we think uh, we define ourselves. But it's often in this idea of, I'm this and I'm not that, and this sort of mystical sense of connection, the spiritual sense. Of being connected with everything that felt to me like the antidote to uh, genocide and to fundamentalism and to environmental destruction and so I, I was initially traumatized I would say by the Holocaust then it was um, the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was a little boy with the whole uh, <laughs> duck under your desk mm-hmm. and you can survive nuclear explosions you know which wasn't very reassuring um, and then the final step for me was the Vietnam War. So now it wasn't the Germans, it wasn't the Russians, now it's my own country that's doing these horrible Mm -hmm. things. And I've become um, friends with Daniel Ellsberg, who was the fellow that released the Pentagon Papers about the Vietnam War. And he was working in the National Security Council. And what he ended up saying is that he first off thought that um, we were on the wrong side of the war and then over time, he realized that it wasn't that we had chosen the wrong side; it's that we were the wrong side, that we were this imperialistic, murderous country in a lot of different ways. Okay. So all of that just led me to think more and more that um, this the what the contribution that I wanted to make to the world to deal with all these things was um, to help people feel connected to themselves and to nature, and that. While there's many, many different ways to do that, historically for thousands of years, people have done that with psychedelics. And I felt that the way that psychedelics were so suppressed, I I sort of um, learned about psychedelics really in 1971, when I was a a 17-year-old freshman in college and started taking them and started realizing that I'd been misled on what they were, completely um, exaggerated the risks, although there are major risks. And I also had uh, been uh, given the word that there was no benefits and it would drive you crazy. If you did LSD six times, you were certifiably insane and all of this. But once I started realizing it, I was also um, a draft resistor for Vietnam. And I'd studied a lot about uh, Martin Luther King and Thoreau and Tolstoy and nonviolent resistance. And so I was prepared to go to jail instead of going to Vietnam. And that led my parents to say um, they were sympathetic, but they said, you're never going to be able to be a doctor or a lawyer or Indian chief or anything like this because you'll be a (laughs) criminal. And Mm -hmm. then I said, okay, I'm just going to have to accept that because I'm not going to go to war just so I can have a certain kind of a job. Um, But then when I started doing psychedelics and I saw that they were suppressed and all the research had been stopped and President Nixon said Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America, I started thinking, what is Timothy Leary doing right to get such uh, hatred from Nixon? And it was, again, this idea that um, we're not this um, isolated, exceptional country that can dominate the world, that we're part of this bigger system. So anyway, all of that led me to think, ah, I could be an underground psychedelic therapist. I don't need a license for that. And so I, okay. I so all of this is to say, I don't think of myself as a saint. <laughs> I think of Good. myself <laughs> as just having very loving parents and very politically um aware parents. And it just felt to me like, what is the most uh, strategic thing that I could do in the world? And it's to help more people feel this sense of interconnectedness. And that's what really mm-hmm. has been driving me. So the whole time that I've been, working on this since 1971, 72 really, even though there's been massive resistance, I always felt like um, if I wasn't careful, I'd end up in the concentration camps or I'd end up obliterated in a, a nuclear explosion with Russia or you know, my own country would do something. So mm-hmm. that, that's okay. what just kept me going the whole time.
0: I mean, um, it's funny you say that with the, that you were dreaming of Holocaust survivors talking to you that you should explore psychedelics. I had in my psilocybin trip, I had like a five hour conversation with a rabbi and we walked through, I mean, I'm German as you know, which is very interesting that it just came was very interesting to me. And we had a long conversation and he told me that I would have to support the Jewish culture to come back to the former glamorous form. And um, I would totally have to stay a shiksa and I could not change. <laughs> so I had like a whole schedule of what I was supposed to do from now on. So Wow. Uh, yeah. But
1: I mean, and, and, and let me just add that, no, I mean, that, that somehow yeah. you've done or that's happened. So I have friends from Israel that were uh, peace activists that did a lot of work with Israelis mm. and Palestinians in Israel, and they got so discouraged by the sort of ultra-orthodox taking over the politics in Israel and by the whole um, Mm -hmm. I would say um, criminal enterprise a lot of times that the state of Israel is doing to seize property and things that they decided to leave Israel and their refuge was Berlin. So there's refugees now leaving Israel, going to Berlin and there's a sizable Jewish community in Berlin Um, and so it it is it is a welcome kind of place for people, yeah. when, and and I think the fundamentalists of all the religions are a big problem. And the Jewish fundamentalists are no different in that they're very much racist and hate-filled and um, not uh, at all living to the ideals of the religion. Absolutely,
0: and I mean, let's go back to, quickly to 1986, like when you, I would say probably the height of war on drugs or like the beginning of war on drugs. And you start this whole thing. So this is like a total incredible endeavor to just start in the mid 80s. So how, was, how did that all happen? How did you, you just like one day like, okay, this is, I don't care, I'm just gonna found maps. So. Well, it was really this
1: idea when I was 18 in 1972 that I said, I'm gonna devote myself to psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And I realized at the time that I was not up to the job in the sense that I was not emotionally mature. I would have LSD experiences and I would get scared and I would clamp down and I wouldn't let go. And, and my experiences were um, intimations of something deep and spiritual and bringing up difficult emotions, but I wasn't mature enough to really handle it. And I also had the delusion that the more drugs you take, the faster you'll evolve. And you know, many people I think have had that delusion and I wish it were true, but um, I realized fairly quickly that it wasn't true. And so I ended up basically 10 years of trying to get grounded through building things. So I got into mm-hmm. the physical world, uh, construction, I built houses, I built various things and would trip every once in a while to kind of get mature. So I dropped out of college for 10 years from my freshman wow. year in 1972, and it took me 10 years until 1982 when I went back to college. And that's where I felt finally I could study psychedelics, I could study psychedelic psychotherapy. And so, you know, this was Ronald Reagan had been elected in 1980, and um, Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan's wife Nancy Reagan was making the drug war her big thing, just say no. So the drug war really began with Nixon around 1970. And he's the one that first used the words war on drugs and all of that. But then the Reagans decided to escalate it again. And the first thing I did is I went to um, Esalen in Big Sur and studied with Stan Groff, the world's expert in LSD research and therapy. Um, I'd taken a class with him in 1972 and realized at the time I needed to do integration. So there was this basic 10-year decade of that. And then when I went to um, study with Stan in um, September of 82 for a month long workshop at Esalen, um, that's where I learned about MDMA. And I learned that it was a drug called Adam. That was the code name for it as a therapeutic drug. And it was obviously um, incredible. The first time I tried it, I just thought this drug has an enormous potential. This is so healing in so many different ways. But when I learned about it, it had started being used in the middle 70s as a therapy drug, but it had escaped those circles and had become ecstasy and sold in public bars and things like that. So it was yes. it was very clear that it was doomed, particularly at this time, as you're saying, with Nancy Reagan and the escalation of the drug war. So, um, But it was still legal for a period of time. And I'd say what really mm-hmm. oh, sort of okay. cemented my... Um, view of this approach to social change is in 1983, I read a book by the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. And it was an incredible book called New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. And Robert Muller was the um, person who wrote it. He was French uh, resistance fighter. And he was the mystic of the UN, was there for 40 years. And his theory was that we have these um, structures like the United Nations to mediate conflicts between countries, but a lot of them underneath that are religious conflicts. And we need more of a spiritual approach to religion, not a literal approach. And so that you don't have to kill somebody if their symbols are different than yours, or, you know, we don't need the Sunnis killing the Shiites, or the Catholics killing the Protestants, or the ultra-Orthodox Jews trying to squash everybody, the reformed Jews, not through murder, but through different ways, disenfranchising them. so. It was a great um, book about social change and it put this spiritual sense of being part of the whole planet as the core of the change that humanity needs to go through. But the book didn't mention anything about psychedelics. So I wrote him a letter Mm -hmm. and talked to him about MDMA and talked to him about um, psychedelics and research that had been done with psilocybin mushrooms to produce mystical experiences. And I asked, I appealed to him to um, help bring back psychedelic research. And, and to my utter astonishment, he wrote me back. And that that sort wow. of confirmed this idea that this uh, social change will have a spiritual, mystical component, and that that's where I think humanity is moving towards. And so when um, I knew that MDMA was going to be criminalized eventually because it was ecstasy, I started a nonprofit in 1984 before MAPS. And the purpose mm-hmm. of that was to gather um, Witnesses and experts to prepare our legal defense once the DEA moved against us. So the fact that it was a dismal time and the Reagans were escalating the war on drugs and were hiring murderous death squads throughout Central America and doing horrible things. Again, it just came to me that this spiritual awakening and helping people deal with their traumas—that that was the most important thing I could do. So throughout this. Basically, forty-eight years since nineteen seventy-two, this has always seemed to me like the very best thing I could do. So even though it was the height of the um, reescalation of the drug war, um, I, I felt, felt like um, nothing was as bad as being in the concentration camps or being killed or being blown up. So it, it didn't dissuade me. It just was. Uh, the, it was just what I thought was the best contribution I could make, and so. After I um, started this nonprofit, we did use that to try to protect MDMA, and I described how we won and then we lost, and then that just led me think, what's the only way forward, and that was going to be through research, and the governments weren't paying for this. Um, Merck, actually in Germany, um, invented MDMA in 1912, all right, all right. All
0: right. All right,
1: and but they had abandoned it, and it was in the public domain, and all of the psychedelics were in the public domain, and. LSD had been invented in 1938 by Sandoz, Mm -hmm. and the uh, 59 is when they synthesized, Albert Hoffman synthesized psilocybin. It just seemed like um, this kept feeling like the best thing for me to do. And so, despite the massive opposition, um, I did have to go to a therapist, actually, to see if I was crazy. Um, Wow, really? Yeah. Interesting. Because I I wanted to know, is it crazy for me to want to devote my life to psychedelics when there's so much opposition. Um, You know, is this a fantasy? Is this just a real weird idea? So um, I I thought I should explore that. And so I, you know, had this phenomenal therapist who actually had um, been in charge of training for the Peace Corps. He'd been in charge of a PhD program at Harvard in psychology and social change. And he'd his name was Ed Barker and he had uh, retired in Sarasota, Florida where I was going to college. And so he became my therapist and we explored this and uh, happily came to the conclusion I wasn't crazy. <laughs> Yay,
0: <do> <laughs> thank you. <Yeah. laughs> oh my god, but this is this is this is a really big thing. I mean because I, my next question would be now you are kind of almost there with your phase 3 trial which me, trial which means um, that soon it might be possible to have MDMA therapy. But again, for a very long time, it's like, how do you, that would be would have been my question, how do you prevent yourself from thinking, am I like totally crazy to do this when there are so many forces, not only in Star Wars, like real forces against me? And I mean, it's not like we're not talking about a couple of years. like you could say, like 20, 30 years, right, in your case. So, I mean, how do you, besides going to a therapist, I mean, he, and even when he told you, OK, look, uh, this is not crazy, it's your passion, but how do you kind of gather energy and like, almost like, I mean, Tim Ferriss keeps talking about being stoic and just like not looking left or right. I mean, I'm sure it's not the right interpretation, but kind of, you know, not being too much phased by good things or bad things. So. But still, it's a really big achievement what you had in the last 30 years to not give this up. So how, how, do, you, how do you proceed with this thing? The, the way in which I sort of kept in
1: touch that this was a worthwhile mission was two. One was taking drugs myself and seeing what they contributed to my life, to the life of the people that I was doing them with and just having that, sort of inner connection and inner contact and knowing that they, quote, worked. The other was working as a therapist so that I would occasionally, you know, sit for people in difficult straits. And so in 1984, when I was still in this process of um, preparing to become a therapist before, 1988 is when I switched and went to Harvard to the Kennedy School of Government and started studying the politics of it all. Um, but that's because um, in 1988, when I tried to get a clinical psych PhD, nobody would let me in because I said I wanted to study MDMA and research had been shut down almost for two decades. So, But it was 1984 that I worked with a PTSD patient who was on the edge of suicide. <clears throat> and I didn't feel qualified, but this woman had no other options. Um, she'd explored traditional psychiatry, she'd been in a mental institution. They'd given her that same drug she'd been given before. She had attempted suicide in the past, and she was a friend of a friend of mine. And so working with her um, helped me see her make breakthroughs. And now um, that was 1984. So, you know, that's 36 years ago. And I watched her um, move from being suicidal to becoming a therapist. And now she's one of our lead therapists working on our research and training other therapists. So every once in a while, I would work with people and help them work on their issues, and I would see them make progress, and I would see the benefits that I got. So it was that direct experience. So I felt that MDMA is such a love drug, is such an open-hearted drug. that the stories about it were so wrong that that the government stories were propaganda, but they managed to get scientists through grant money to twist the science and to interpret the results in the most negative way and to ignore all the benefits and to just say, oh, here's some risks that were actually way, way exaggerated, we know now. But it was through this sense of knowing personally and seeing in others that they worked and knowing that the story of what they really were was so different from the propaganda that it gave me hope that eventually this kind of a tool would become appreciated. And it also felt to me like this is so much what we need. We need the self-love, the self-acceptance, the empathy, the open-heartedness, The courage that you get when you're not so defensive, MDMA will, I would say, produces emotional courage because Mm -hmm. it helps people to feel self-acceptance and secure in who they are and in their own imperfections. We're not so wounded, not so vulnerable because we have this, um, people have said a lot of it is due to oxytocin, which is a hormone of nursing mothers of love, connection, and MDMA stimulates oxytocin. And there was, when you
0: give birth, that's also
1: yeah. involved, right? Yeah, yeah. so it's it's um, one of the main aspects of why MDMA feels the way it does, why we, we oh, understand okay. it. There was a paper in Nature that was just published uh, about a year ago by researchers at Johns Hopkins, uh, Gold Dolan, and she gave MDMA to mice, and she showed that it stimulated oxytocin, but that the oxytocin produced uh, new neural connections in pro-social areas of the brain so that you're actually rewiring your brain under the influence of MDMA, that you're able to reroute traumatic memories so that, that we've seen this with brain scans, that memories are processed differently after MDMA therapy, traumatic memories processed differently, also the sense of connections. And so it just always felt that the reality was so different than the propaganda and what we needed as a species and as individuals was um, so much of it wrapped into MDMA and into other psychedelics that I just felt hope. But I also felt like I couldn't think of anything more strategic or anything more necessary. And I also looked around the world and I didn't see anybody else doing it. There were underground therapists, but it just felt like um, it needed to come above ground. And so I had the support of my family and I was able then to, to keep working on it.
0: Okay. So what's, what's the Tim Ferriss story you were saying? Okay, so um, <laughs> Tim Ferriss, so right now in the
1: history of MAPS for 34 years, we've raised about $80 million in donations. So what we're trying to do is nonprofit drug development with the goal of having MDMA as a medicine, and then we will market it in a public benefit maximizing way rather than for profit. We will make a profit. We'll use the profits for more research, but that it's about demonstrating a new way to market pharmaceuticals. So we've raised 80 million so far. We've got another $30 million to raise that will make us um, complete the research from the FDA. Um, also, we'll get approval in Israel and Canada because we wow. we have um, 15 sites in phase three, two in Israel, two in Canada, and 11 throughout the United States. So we'll be able to get approval in those three countries. Plus of this 30 million, 10 million is um, for commercialization, for training more therapists, for um, doing what's called expanded access, compassionate use, and, and building up our marketing team and all this to try to really get it approved. Once it's approved by the FDA, now we want it implemented. So we're trying to raise now this $30 million. We're calling it the capstone campaign. And, um, about, um, three and a half weeks ago, Tim Ferriss and I were going to do a podcast and, um, the podcast, um, we started out five minutes or so and, um, he didn't like my microphone. So he said, all right, let's, let's take a break. This is too important to not have good sound. Um, let's take a break and we'll do it again in a week. And then he said, well, maybe we can also try to think about getting, um, some matching grants. Maybe I can offer a matching grant during the podcast. So okay. um, we had one person said they'd offer a $100,000 matching grant. But then Tim went to work and he's, he did some amazing things and um, he himself and he got four others to each donate a million dollars. So wow! So we have a $5 million matching grant. Then, and, and the podcast was gonna be um, released on this Thursday. But mm-hmm. because of all the riots and the problems in the U.S., it's postponed till next week. So that's what. Okay. So then oh. we record the podcast, and we're going to be uh, talking about this five million dollar matching grant. And um, we also mentioned, I mentioned to him that I'd applied to this um, foundation for a ten million dollar matching grant, and they had given money with Tim to Johns Hopkins to set up a seventeen million dollar psychedelic mm-hmm. research center at Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. um, and they were very interested in our work and we were moving forward and it looked like they might actually give us this grant. And then they told us, uh, this is now about um, two months ago, that they were not going to do that because of COVID. They were stopping all their psychedelic giving and they wouldn't resume their psychedelic oh. giving until the end of the year, or maybe 2021 and focusing mm-hmm. on COVID relief. So Tim actually knew this uh, foundation. It's the Stephen and Alexandra Cohn foundation. And he spoke to Alex Cohn and she had not read our proposal because they'd sort of switched gears to um, COVID relief. So when she mm-hmm. read our proposal and she heard that Tim had a $5 million matching grant assembled, she said she would match that. So now we have a $10 million matching grant and we, we will have Amazing. 90 days to raise the next 10 million. And if so, then we'll get 20 million Plus, we've already raised 10 million from our board of directors and core supporters. So then we'll have the $30 million. And then so the reason so this is the Tim Fair story. So he's wanting this to be kept private until he releases the podcast. So since your podcast is gonna be at the end of June, his will be next week. Now the other thing I'll just add is that we are also wanting to globalize not just Israel and Canada. So and the U.S., yeah. but we want to globalize MDMA. So we're going to actually, once we raise this first 30 million, then we've got another 30 million we have to raise for Europe and for the rest of the world. So we now have negotiated with the European Medicines Agency. We have um, sites in uh, Germany, right. in uh, the Netherlands, oh. in the Czech Republic, in Finland, and Norway, um, in Portugal, and in uh, England. And so okay. we're, we're very close, actually, for approval in Germany. and You are? Wow, okay. And so what we're doing Better. first is that we have to train the therapists. So just mm-hmm. to get to that, that, that what we're saying is that the treatment is not the drug. The drug is a tool to help psychotherapy be more effective. So the treatment is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So, once it's a medicine, the only people that will be able to prescribe it and treat patients are people that we've trained in the therapy so that they know the treatment. Then they can uh, deliver it, they can innovate, they can modify it if they want. Mm-hmm. But, but the, So what we're doing in Europe, we're about two years behind in Europe than we are in the US. So right. I, so, mm-hmm. we, we, um, for strategic reasons, we had an America first strategy. <laughs> 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 And then, um, so we're we're close. The final step of the training is to have um, we we work with male female co therapy teams. Mm-hmm. So two person therapy team. One has to be licensed as a therapist. The other can be a student or an apprentice, and and learning. Uh, it's not always male female, but usually, you know, it's eight hour mm-hmm. MDMA sessions that last a long time. So, the one part of our training, the final part, is where this new team works with a PTSD patient in the exact same protocol we're gonna use for phase three with all everything videotaped and our therapy training team watching the videotapes and giving feedback about how they can um, more closely administer the method, the manual, the treatment manual that we've developed. And so that's what we're trying to start in Europe. And it'll probably take us till next summer, till the summer of 2021 we'll, when we'll be able to um, start phase three. And so we hope by that point we'll have raised the money for globalization as well. But it's going to be more difficult because there's more of a tradition of charity in the United States. In Europe, governments tend to pay for things. There's more government health care. It's not such philanthropically oriented. So it's going to be a challenge for us. But but we do have support from um, some members of the uh, Siemens family in Germany.
0: Good, good. And, uh, I like that. Yeah. So so we're hopeful. So, yeah. I mean, wh- how much do you need for Germany? And when can we tell people, well, let's say, can we tell people in two years there will be, let's say, um, a place in Berlin possibly to do this? Well, no.
1: We, we think that think, there'll I? be a place in Berlin before the end of um, this year. You know, depending on oh, when wow. things open up. Okay. To, to start the training so that You know, we hope by September or so to be able to start the training of 2020. Then we hope by summer of 2021, we'll start the study. Then we hope maybe by the summer of 2022, we'll have done the research. And then it'll take us probably a year to negotiate with the European Medicines Agency and the various uh, um countrywide regulatory agencies. And also then the, the big challenge we'll be getting the national health cares to pay for it. And so maybe 2023, but but what we are gonna hopefully do is raise this 30 million by the summer of 2021.
0: Just how much do you need for Germany? We can't say it now. I mean, now is the time we can't say it. (laughs) Well, it's not really that way. So what I mean is that
1: it's for the whole, so just doing, so the European Medicines Agency has basically said that they want geographical distribution throughout Europe And what we're really happy, what they told us, is that they want us to enroll refugees and migrants as well, with PTSD in the study, and that may happen in Germany because we need them to be more or less settled, um, you know, stable in a period of time. For so there are a bunch of like Syrian refugees and others that are in Germany that are more or less stable. So um, of the, um, we're anticipating that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of. let's say, three and a half million dollars per country. Okay. Something like that. We can so, do that. <laughs> so if we had three and a half million dollars from Germany, but you know, that, that uh, and, and maybe there'd even be government money. In the U.S., we have not been able to get a penny from the National Institute of Mental Health, from the Veterans Administration. Well, wow. The Veterans Administration in the United States right now spends somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 billion a year just on disability payments to veterans who are disabled with PTSD. And these are young people mostly. It's going to be going for 30, 40, 50 years. The costs are enormous. And yet for political reasons, we have not yet gotten a penny from the Veterans Administration. The FDA has declared MDMA a breakthrough therapy for PTSD. Our Mm -hmm. um, phase two results were extraordinarily promising. Um, We just did what's called an interim analysis, a sneak peek, you could say, of our phase three data that was very promising also. So you would think in a rational world, if there's a group that's spending you know, 15 or so billion dollars a year, that they would give us $10 million or $20 million to study a new promising treatment. (laughs) Um, But they don't. I mean, we had one situation right now. There's over a million vets disabled with PTSD in the United States. And a couple years ago, there was a study that we did in veterans, firefighters, and police officers. And there was such a backlog of veterans applying for disability payments that um, it took a long time for them to be processed. And so there was a guy who was totally disabled, couldn't leave his house sometimes because of PTSD, and had applied to get benefits from the Veterans Administration. And he kept waiting and waiting and waiting for his appointments. And while that was happening, he volunteered for our study. And during our study, it's three and a half months long. <clears throat> you only get MDMA three times, once a month. Mm-hmm. In a, And then there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, three before the first session for preparation, building a therapeutic alliance, and then three of these 90-minute non-drug sessions after each MDMA session to help integrate it. So he had gone through the first session, made great progress, gone through the second session, made even more progress, And he was driving on his way for the third session, the third and final MDMA session. And then he finally got a call from the Veterans Administration saying they were ready to set up his appointment for him to come and be evaluated to whether he would be given a disability for PTSD, which would have meant around $35,000 a year for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's in the neighborhood of a million and a half, million to million and a half dollars per veteran who's uh, 100% disabled with PTSD. And so he told the person who was calling him from the VA that he felt like he didn't have PTSD anymore. He didn't need the money. He didn't want to do it. So um, we were just thinking, God, if only we've just saved them a million or a million and a half dollars. Why don't they? One person. Yeah, I said, yeah. maybe they shared the savings with us, and, but they didn't, of course. So, in any case, that's our challenge.
0: Personally, if I would be, would be you, it would make me so kind of agitated and not patient at all, kind of.
1: Well, well um, what good. I've said, though, um, is that patience is sometimes the fastest way. Yeah. You know, if you push too word, if you yeah. push too fast, sometimes people get a strong reaction against and then it slows things down. So I always felt that I had the Holocaust survivors behind me saying don't give up. I mean, the fact that it was oh, hard nice. didn't matter. It's like what else would I do? How do I address and, and and as it seems the world has gotten even worse. I mean, we're very much Um, You know, one hopes that Trump is an expression of um, the last vestiges of resistance, you know, in a way, the kind of narrow minded thinking and and showing how ugly that is. And maybe there'll be a counter reaction in a peaceful way, so um, an evolutionary reaction. So I just felt like I had no other choice. And it was super frustrating because we've started in 1990 to do research at the, in the VA. In the sense, that was, the, that was at a time when it was just Vietnam vets that still had PTSD. And we were offering to pay for them, for the VA to do research inside the VA. And we had work with uh, doctors and therapists that knew that they had patients that needed more treatments, that, that not all of them got better from the drugs and therapy that they had. But it would go to the political leadership and they would stop it. So that was 30 years ago. And now we're waiting from the to hear from the FDA any day now, could be this week, could be next week, about a protocol that we're trying to do inside the VA, uh, the Bronx VA in New York. And we think that the FDA is going to say yes. So we may be at this 30-year period, but we still have to pay for it. But it's a way to right. educate yeah. the VA. And it's with a woman I'll just mention, Rachel Yehuda. She's going to be in a podcast too. Oh, great, 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 great. Yeah. Yeah, because she's done work with uh, epigenetics, the multi-generational trauma, and actually showed a biological mechanism. She's worked with Holocaust survivors and their children and shown how, you know, we we know how uh, DNA evolution takes place over very long periods of time, but what turns on your genes can change in a moment in your life, you know, and it can change it within a generation. So this epigenetic transmission of trauma that we can, start to understand more and more how trauma gets passed from generation to generation to generation, but that it's still something that can be healed. So that's what Rachel is is going to talk about.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, we, we got to this topic in our podcast, on my podcast with David Bronner, like the first podcast we did. And um, because we met in, of all places, we met in Nuremberg to do this podcast. And he was just visiting Biofach, like the, the fair to, to kind of negotiate about the products, He's the, the company. So, and um, he was just visiting his, uh, like his ancestors came from Heilbronn. And he saw all these cobblestones of his family that were basically had to go to Auschwitz. So, and um, it's so interesting how this goes back so many generations, how people are affected even if they're now teenagers from a lot of Jewish friends I have, like even their teenage kids are affected by this. Of course, not in a way that you would see it on TV, like when Holocaust survivors talk about or their parents who have not survived, but it's still in a family system. So, and I think this is what Rachel is also researching, I guess, right? But I mean, one one thing that, of course, we, we have to address, I think, the situation right now in America and in the research I just did for actually another podcast I I found again a, a very interesting researcher I think her, her name is Monica Williams she's also involved with maps I think and uh, she I mean this is something that might be what she researches might be um from a little bit familiar in America but for you Euro- people in Europe I think Hardly have heard of racial trauma. I think now everybody knows what it is, and since the last, at least since the last couple of days. So, and um, what I read about her is that she started, has already started a study with um, African Americans suffering from a lifelong PTSD situation.
1: In our phase two, so now we talked about how we're in phase three. In our phase two, yeah. we, um, I thought without really um, trying, in a sense, that we would have a lot of African-Americans, particularly who are veterans, apply for our study, that there's a lot of African-Americans in the military. And as it turned out, we didn't get a single one. And so there's such a history of racism in America and that African-Americans have been experimented on um, against their knowledge sometimes. There's something famous in America called the Tuskegee Experiment, where African-Americans, this is like 40 years ago, but, um, or 60 years ago, but they had syphilis. And so they were not treated, even though there were treatments, they were just watched how the disease progresses. So it it was just horrible. So the African-Americans have this distrust, a lot of times, of the medical system, of doctors. And so what we realized is, in order to get a more diverse patient population, we needed to train therapists of color. And that's where we started working with Monica Williams to try to work on um, a special program for training therapists of color. Um, She actually um, left um, where she was at the University of Connecticut. Now she's in um, Canada and working there. So she didn't actually start yet treating people with MDMA. But um, we also have negotiated with the FDA what's called um, expanded access or compassionate use. And so, Monica Williams and her team will be one of the sites for compassionate use. It won't be for phase three data, but it will be for safety data. And um, we're hoping that that'll start up in a couple months against once the pandemic has subsided a little bit and therapists and patients are willing to to do it. But I I think the main point there is that um, we need to make uh, a strong effort to train. Uh, Native American therapists to treat Native Americans and African Americans and we need to have a whole range of diversity in our therapists to reach the widespread uh, minority populations that are often the more traumatized populations.
0: So you need like a a diverse team of therapists all over the world that actually would be able to work with the specific kind of people that they, the, the traumas that they address actually.
1: Yeah, I think think it'll be a little bit challenging for us in Germany, where we hope to work with refugees and migrants. So I don't think we'll have like, you know, Syrian therapists. Although maybe, but probably not. But maybe. But that would be the challenge. So it's not always the case, like um, that you need a therapist that looks exactly like you. I mean, you can get help from people that are different from you, but but in the end, we do want to have. A, a vast diversity of therapists.
0: Okay, so just to kind of have your your vision on the next, let's say, 10, 20 years. So what would be your ideal, <laughs> very, very simple topic, uh, what would be your ideal vision for the next, let's say, 10 years, not to make it too much in the future? Okay, so first off, let me
1: just say that um, because of all the work that we've done and other researchers have done over the last of 35, 40 years. There's now a renaissance in psychedelic research all over the world. And there's now also for-profit companies. You just uh, did an interview, you said, with Christian Engermeier. So there are for-profit companies coming and we support them. We think that they can fill an important niche. But we do think, particularly in America, less so in Germany and Europe where there's national healthcare, that the for-profit motive in healthcare has been terribly destructive so that we have in america the per capita the highest expenditures in the world by far on health care but mm-hmm. our av- our outcomes are down around number 50 in the countries in the world because it's so inequitable because insurance companies skim off so much of the money the money doesn't go to treating patients so my ideal world will have for-profit companies like a tie and others, but they will be held in check for being profit-maximizing without any kind of social right. conscience by nonprofits. So, in terms of the next twenty years, in my ideal world, we would raise this uh, ten million dollars now for the challenge grant from Tim Ferris. That would get us the thirty million dollars. We'd raise the thirty million dollars for Europe, and then that would help us distribute the information to most countries in the world. There's just a very few that we'd have to do additional. Like Japan says that they're so genetically distinct, they want at least a big study in Japan. But most countries will take the data from US and Europe and accept it in their own countries. So what I think we'll do is in 2022, we hope to um, get approval from the FDA and then Israel and Canada will go second. They won't go first then hopefully 2023 2024 at the latest in europe and the rest of the world and then what we want to do is look at other indications of mdma because it's um, it's not just good for ptsd it's good for a whole range of different things we've done social anxiety people with life-threatening illnesses Um, we're about to start an eating disorder study it's great for couples therapy. It's phenomenal. I was just going to say. Yeah, it's phenomenal for couples therapy. My wife and I try to do MDMA once <laughs> a year together, and it's very,
0: very helpful. I love that. <laughs> well, I mean, this is like the, the requests I mostly get secretly from people on, on WhatsApp, like, hey, can you tell us where to do this couples therapy thing on MDMA? Which is like very high in the request rank, I feel.
1: Yeah, uh, very so, much so. So then we want to explore gr- group therapy. I think that's going to be an important thing. Maybe it will reduce the cost of it. I don't think it'll be better, but maybe it will be Mm -hmm. close to as good. But we want to explore group therapy. Then um, we're interested in Ibogaine. There should be nonprofit competition to the for-profit actors. And then throughout the um, decade of the 2020s, we will end up building these psychedelic clinics. And. These psychedelic clinics will be people that are trained in MDMA, but then through a tie and Compass, hopefully, and USONA, this nonprofit company, they'll get psilocybin mm-hmm. approved. Ketamine has already been used, an isomer of ketamine, mm-hmm. S-ketamine, sometimes racemic is being used for depression, and the therapists are going to want to um, be cross-trained. They they don't want to be an MDMA therapist or a psilocybin therapist, they want to be a psychedelic therapist, and they want to have the whole range right. of psychedelics. So. We will build thousands. Now, now we're, we're not necessarily going to be the building. We will um, inspire and train the therapists. Um, other companies may build networks of clinics. We want them more to be locally owned. So anything, we'll, we'll think there'll be about a decade or so of um, thousands and thousands of clinics in the US and Europe, throughout the world. And then in 2035, so this is now just 15 years. We think okay. that enough people will have seen the benefits of psychedelic therapy and that they will yeah. then know that the propaganda about one dose of MDMA cause brain damage and then you're going to be functionally um, affected in a negative way that it's propaganda or that if you take LSD five or six times, you're certifiably insane. The the medical use of psychedelics will change people's attitudes towards the legalization of Psychedelics, And in 2035, I think we're going to move towards what I call licensed legalization. And what that means is that these drugs, I believe, should be legal. I think it's a fundamental violation of human rights that the government says you can't explore your own consciousness in these ways. And there are risks. But I think what it, licensed legalization means that if you have a license uh, to drive a car, you know the it's not that hard to get but the important thing is if you crash you can lose your driver's license but what right, we yeah. see is a lot of uh, alcoholics go ahead and they lose their license because they're driving drunk but then they still can buy alcohol they go back in the car even though they don't have a driver's license and they kill people so we should make it harder for them to get alcohol so they should have a license to buy alcohol So it's not so hard to get, but it's easy to lose. And so I think with psychedelics, what's going to happen is people will go to these clinics and have a subsidized experience under supervision, subsidized by all the tax money by people are paying to buy these drugs to do them on their own. And then they will have um, an experience, then they'll get a license to buy the drug. And so then if they misbehave, they get punished for their misbehavior and they get their license taken away for a period of time. So the important thing that I wanna say here is that <clears throat> while we are a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, we believe that people should have access to MDMA, also ibogaine, also psilocybin, without having to go to their doctors. Without ha- They should be able to heal themselves if they want to. They should have the medicalization covered by insurance if they want that. But what we're really interested in is mass mental health. And I'll, I'll just say that I had a, um, This idea came to me, I had um, two days in a row, Um, this is now 1985. One day, this was a group of people at Aslan planning for protecting MDMA, and we did DMT. And so DMT is, um, you know, I did it with Terence McKenna and... Ralph Metzner, an incredible group of people. We would each do it, smoke it, it'd be like 20 minutes, we'd talk about what happened, the next person would do it in a circle. So I had this beautiful experience of being part of everything, this mystical unit of mystical experience. And then what happened to me was um, this sense about how it was connected to evolution, everything, and in the most private part of my brain, where I think, you know, where the eye is, I'm, I'm using words. I'm using language. I'm talking to myself in a language I didn't invent that people for thousands of years have worked on developing the English you know, language. And so I felt like um, you know, I was losing the sense where I'm part of everything. Everything's part of me. It was beautiful. And then I had this thought, if everything is part of me and I'm part of everything, then Hitler is a part of me too. And that I have this same wow. evil inside me, that it's not out there that it's in here too. And that was very shocking to me. It was just like, but it felt real and right. And so it was just very much disturbed me for the whole rest of the day. I I was just very moody. And the next day, um, a group of us did ketamine. Oh my God, Jesus. Under the influence (laughs) of ketamine, all of a sudden now, now this is after I've had dreams of the Holocaust survivors telling me to study psychedelics. So okay. somehow or other, under ketamine, I'm hovering above and behind Hitler as he's giving a speech with you know, the masses in front of him.
0: This is, this is what you've seen, like you were behind Hitler? Yeah. So watching him doing a speech, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and, um, and I was somehow safe. The ketamine was made so I was there, but not quite there. So I could watch it, and it was making me more and more scared. And I felt the panic kind of rising in me. And then I saw the whole, um, the Heil Hitler salute. And the way that, I, I, I had an insight into that, the way that I never have before. And I felt like the salute was, he would go like Heil Hitler, and he would, it would be like pushing the energy from the one to the many. And then everybody would do the salute back to him. And it would be compressing all the energy from the many into the one. And it would go back and forth and back and forth. And it was like this, you um, energy that was just increasing and increasing and increasing and it was the the union you could say between the dictator and the masses and i was getting more and more scared and i was thinking how do i get inside his head to try to make it so he doesn't want to murder all these people that he's not so filled with hatred how do we do that and i felt like if i uh if and my panic felt like it was um bubbles underwater almost and if the fear broke the surface which would mean I would have to look away. I'd never be able to deal with this level of hatred and evil. And so I remembered under ketamine that you can breathe. I thought, just breathe. And that that helped me to metabolize the fear in a way. And then I realized, and this is, I think, why I'm so glad that you asked this question about the 20 years, because what I realized is there's no way to change his mind. There's no way to change Trump's mind. There's no way to change. People who don't want to change are not going to change. But then I looked at all of the people, the hundred thousand or whatever people that were saluting him back, they're giving away their power to the dictator. They don't get as much out of it as the dictator gets. So ironically, what I thought is that it's going to be easier to change the mind of millions of people than to change the mind of the dictators, the autocrats, really want to rule by power and fear and murder. And that led me to think that we need two things. We need to medicalize psychedelics for medical indications, but we also need drug policy reform, fundamental human rights, and we need to make it so that mass mental health is really what our goal is. And that means helping people have these experiences with peer support on their own outside of medicine or religion in order to um, embed this kind of spiritual connection in the billions of people. So now, like for example, I mentioned Robert Mueller, the the Assistant Secretary General of the UN. Um, The cover of his book was a picture of the Earth from space. So the astronauts a lot of times talk about seeing the Earth as one thing, as this globe in the sky hovering. So it's a lot cheaper to give somebody LSD or psilocybin or MDMA <laughs> than to shoot them up in space. <coughs> so, as we know now. <laughs> so anyway, so what wow. I think is, in twenty thirty five, we yeah. will start having more and more people have these opportunities legally. You know, a lot of people are doing it illegally, and the police are mostly looking the other way because people aren't are. are relatively not getting hurt and they're doing important work. And we have in America, the opiate epidemic. We have so many people dying of drug overdoses that the police are focusing more on that than on psychedelics. And they don't see psychedelics the way it was in the 60s, connected to the counterculture, connected to protesting the Vietnam War. So nobody is saying that these protests that are happening throughout America right now are powered by psychedelics. But in the 60s, the protests were, or they were civil rights, protests by prejudice.
0: But I mean, I think if, uh, I recently watched Apocalypse Now again, like I I think I watched it like 10 times, and I watched it under the, to look at the possible PTSD in that movie. And now being in touch now with psychedelics and having done it by myself in a guided situation, I just feel like, oh my God, this movie is so, this is like the movie. If you watch that movie, it's like so interesting suddenly to, to have like a psychedelic view on Apocalypse Now, I feel. Well,
1: well what's amazing. So, so we just had a, a fundraising meeting in uh, Los Angeles with some Hollywood people, inclu- including a, a woman that was um, one of the Playboy bunnies in Apocalypse Now. And so she's very interested in psychedelics. So it connects right to Apocalypse now, and she's interested in trying to help us move forward with our research.
0: Got this scene, if I if I watch that scene, I get like total oh my god, I just I can't think straight. It's like super touching to me. That's probably why I kind of I don't know. Wow. So wow. That's good to know that she is into psychedelics. So isn't it amazing? I, so um <laughs> we had like the weirdest conversation I feel, and the most interesting conversation I ever had with somebody who's like such an important person in psychedelics. And I'm so happy that, you, that I can ask you all these questions. <laughs> and you don't feel like weird if I ask you these questions. So um, thank you so much. That was like, I mean, as, as usual, we could go on like for the next five hours because it's becoming even more interesting. Um, that was amazing. And um, add, there is one thing I'd like to add. Yeah, please, yeah. Which is
1: why there's such an alliance between MAPS and Dr. Bronner's. So, um, David and I bonded um, almost um, 18 years ago, so 15 years ago to 18 years ago. We knew each other, we knew of each other before we actually met. We bonded on the fact that we were both suing the DEA. So, I was suing the DEA to... um, Both, um, you know, I talked about trying to protect MDMA, but later I was suing the DEA to try to get a license to grow marijuana for research.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And David was suing the DEA to try to get a license to grow hemp because hemp is a product in their soaps. So, but what really bonded us was late in the 60s, early 70s is the... um, the label the dr bronner's label by david's grandfather is a response to the holocaust right it's that we're all one that that, that is the the response to um, demonizing others to dehumanizing you know that that out of that pain and suffering came this um, uh, the original dr bronner's uh, philosophy and it was demented or obsessive and you know he was driven crazy by it but but at the core there was something fundamentally beautiful about what he was trying to do and so i've also been motivated by the holocaust so it's that part that really connected david and i because okay. not only were we in a sense responding to the trauma of the holocaust in our different ways but we also had centered on trying to make these Um, experiences that people can have with psychedelics or with cannabis legally available. And so there was one time a couple years ago, um, about um, six years ago where, um, well, five years ago maybe, where we had um, a board of directors meeting at um, Dr. Bronner's uh, headquarters. And so there was a party that night. And uh, some of us were going to do MDMA. And so David was saying, here's some, uh, you know, would you like to do some MDMA? And I said, well, not really, because I try to do it like once a year or so with my wife. And, you know, and then David said, well, this is about the marriage of Dr. Bronner's and MAPS.
0: Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, it's Jesus. And I said, "Um, all right, I'll take it. (laughs) No question. Well, now you're married to, the, to Dr. Bronner's <laughs> also. <laughs> well, that's a really nice story. that you, I'm happy you shared that because it's like you can basically tell it everywhere that this podcast will be or this show. We also, it's not going to be a podcast, it will be a show too on YouTube. Um, so now this story will be kind of uh, go down in the history of psychedelics. <laughs> that's like, great. <laughs> hopefully. Well, I mean, we take care of these couple of million dollars in Germany. (laughs) Thank you, okay. (laughs) Whatever I can do, I'm just starting to think about it. I mean, there's so many rich people and I mean, they hopefully listen to this and we will find ways to to come up with this, I'm sure. So thank you so much. I feel really so honored that I Um, could Could I share one other
1: brief thing? I just wanna say a great thing about Christian Angermeyer. Yeah, please. Christian (laughs) offered to invest in MAPS. Yeah. You know, to pay for all this work in Europe and other things. And I told him, no, I'm not interested. And he's like, well, why are you not interested? I said, well, first off, um, you know, I said, we've already raised $80 million. You know, now that we've changed the climate, it looks like the FDL say, yes, now you just want to come in and give us some money and cream off the top. Where were you when I really needed you 30 years ago? You were gone. You were wow. nowhere. Investors yeah. were nowhere. and. And then I said, the other reason why I don't want to take your money is because MAPS is uh, trying to, you know, we did things for the first 32 of our 34 years that investors would never do. And there's other things. If we start making money from MDMA, I don't want to give it to your investors. I'd rather have it for us to do other things that are non-monetizable, that are important things to do, but our investors aren't going to do it. So Christian said, well, what is something like that? And I said, okay, our most idealistic pro- project is that there are Israelis and Palestinians, small groups of them, that are doing ayahuasca and MDMA together as a way to get over their hatreds. It's like couples yeah. therapy for cultures at war.
0: Yeah, sure, makes sense, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I sure. said, that's a project that we are trying to do. How do you monetize... MDMA for conflict resolution or, you know, it's 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 not monetizable. So Christian said, okay, I understand that. How much does that study cost? And I said, well, it's a three-year project. We've got the first year funded. The second year is a hundred thousand British pounds. The third year is a hundred thousand British pounds. And that's our project. The first year was interviews for people. And then we're going to do controlled experiments to see about um, their attitudes toward each other, stuff like that. So then Christian said, um, he only hesitated a few minutes, and then he, or a few seconds, and then he said, all right, I'll donate that. Wow. And he said, I, he said, I'm not just about money, I'm also about peace. And I thought it was a beautiful thing, he said. And then a few weeks after that, I was interviewed by a, a magazine that was doing a profile about Christian. And so I ended up with the story about how he's funding this project, and he said he's not just about money, he's about peace. And so Christian, of course, really liked that. And when the story came out, he read it, and it it said that we had this three-year project that he was supporting. And he'd forgotten that I'd told him that we had the money for the first year already. So he wrote me, and he said, well, of course, I'll fund the first year, too. I said, well, great. I've already told you, though, we've got it funded. But if you want to take that amount of money and add it to years two and three, then we'll make those uh, projects even bigger. And he said, all right, I'll do that. So Christian is now a charitable donor to one of these super important projects about uh, conflict resolution and MDMA and ayahuasca.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's really, I mean, I feel he's really passionate about this. And I think I feel, I mean, I know him now a little while and I feel he's becoming more and more passionate about this. Than other people compared to other investors, I feel other people. Well, I
1: think that one of the reasons for that, and this is sort of what you asked me about, is that he's had his own experiences that have been deeply valuable sure. to him. So once you have that, you know, um, you know, somebody talked to Carl Jung and said, uh, you know, you sure. know, does he uh, believe in God? And he said, I don't believe in God. I know. Now he didn't mean a particular God, but he, he meant yeah. the spiritual <laughs> world. He knew from his experiences. So there's also a woman, um, Rita Marley, who was married to Bob Marley, the reggae. And she she had an album, a musical album. And the title of it was called Who Feels It, Knows It. Who Feels It, Knows It. And so I, I think that's the story with Christian. That's the story with myself. That's the story with David Bronner. We felt it. We know it.
0: Well, I mean, it's really great that you shared so many very... I mean, some people would even say like um, controversial things about your story also. But I think the more you really talk about controversial things, the more it makes you more credible even to people, I feel. Like if you would only just say like, oh no, and then I took so-and-so and it was so great and then it just kept going. But I thought it was amazing that you said that you for a while you saw a therapist to really check on yourself if you would totally exaggerate your your journey in the, into this and i mean like 30 years is like it's basically like a big part of your life so which you donated to this endeavor well I'm really saying. it's 48
1: years right now so it was 1972 48. when i decided as an 18 year old to um devote my life to psychedelics and to psychedelic therapy mm-hmm. and, and my own therapy and becoming a therapist. And so I still hope that I'll Maybe. just say that my goal is in three or four years from now, um, once we've got MDMA for PTSD approved throughout the world, it would be then right. to sort of set up a clinic by the beach and become a therapist.
0: Uh, probably you will have like a long waiting, waiting list, I think. People will already kind of assign now, I think. Well, thank you so much. That was amazing. I'm so happy we could do this. Yeah, me great. too. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have a great day, and I hope you have great negotiations with Christian. <laughs> yes. And <on> a <the> thing. <laughs> and thank you again for, for, being, for spending so much time on doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah? Cool. Thank you so much. <laughs>